throughout this year, as we've studied book one of the Psalms together, I've tried to demonstrate a reading of the Psalms on multiple levels. And I think it boils down to questions like this. Three, that is. First, there's the question of what a psalm tells us of the author's circumstances when it was written. The question of what the psalm tells us of the author's circumstances when it was written. Are there enemies in the psalm that we notice? Is there particular suffering in the psalm the writer describes? Is he experiencing deliverance? Is there something being celebrated? Is he on the edge of his seat, pleading with desperation? And occasionally, superscriptions will give a historical moment, something happening in the days of Saul, or related to a rebellion that David experiences against him. There's that question of what a psalm can tell us of the author's circumstances when it was written. And nearly all of the psalms in book one have David as author. So we've been interested over our months together by saying, look at what David's going through. Look at this suffering. Or given something going on in First and Second Samuel, here's a reasonable background that lays out some historical stuff for the writer. But then there's a second level of reading the psalm. The question of how the psalm connects to Jesus. We wonder things like, how would the words of this psalm sound if Jesus spoke them? Because the psalms... In his suffering and passion, the death of Jesus on the cross, and earlier than the passion and death of the the Son of God, there are psalms spoken upon his lips. So we wonder how the psalms connect to Jesus if the words were spoken from his very lips. Like, how does the experience of David anticipate the Son of David to come? What specific hopes would the promised Christ Fulfill that this psalm sets up. We're interested in whether there's a pattern of suffering and deliverance that then foreshadows what Jesus himself would experience. So in the levels of considering the psalms, we're wondering and interested in the historical circumstances of the literal David and what he experienced. And then secondly, we're interested in how that psalm written by David connects to his greater son, the Christ. How does it connect to Jesus? And then lastly, the question of how a psalm connects to the Christian life. Is there obedience that is required in the psalm? Is there something about God's character that needs to be believed and remembered? Are there covenant promises that need our meditation and reflection? Is there some experience of lament or an experience of hope that we resonate with, and that in reading that psalm, we express our lament in affliction, and we find comfort in the hope that the psalmist has in God. This is the way Christians have read the psalms for 2,000 years. They read the psalms considering what's going on in the historical account that David writes. What can we notice of his experience? How does the psalm connect to Christ And how does it encourage our Christian living? We consider these threads in Psalm 40 today. David is going to recount the deliverance of the Lord. But he's going to remember the deliverance of the Lord in order that verses 11 and following are going to lead us to his prayer, a prayer for his present crisis to be resolved. Part of how David will persevere through what he's going through is that he will remember what God has already been faithful to do. So that he counts on God's past faithfulness 
to stir the fires of faith and hope in his present endurance looking to God. In verses 1 to 5, let's look at how he celebrates this past deliverance. Verses 1 to 5, a celebration of past deliverance. He says, I waited patiently, and that's not the only time we've heard him make that kind of claim. He has called us to wait upon the Lord. He himself has demonstrated a waiting upon the Lord. And what the waiting involves is David desires things to be other than they are. Every one of us can resonate with that. Here's David going through something and he says, I don't want this to be the way it will be. So I'm going to wait upon the Lord and I'm going to trust that the God of the ages, the maker of heaven and earth, can overcome what has aligned against me. So he's waiting patiently. And he's recounting that when he waited, he knows that his waiting has given way to God's mercy. He says, he, the Lord, inclined to me and heard my cry. It's as if David is saying, the Lord's not removed and remote. He's leaned in. That's what it means to incline. David's trying to describe with human language what God's posture is toward his people. The Lord is inclined toward us. That's wonderful news. He's not inclined away from us towards something else. The Lord has leaned in toward his people with shepherding care and attentiveness. How does this deliverance look in David's life? Well, he describes in verse 2, it's as if he was caught up in something that he calls a pit of destruction, a miry bog. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So you're looking at a a contrast in verse 2. He was in one situation and the Lord established him in a different situation. He was drawn up out of something that was overwhelming, something that he could not free himself from. And then his feet upon a rock, it's about stability and security. That means the first line is about instability. That first line is about insecurity. David is describing himself as in a pit of destruction. And nowhere in 1 and 2 Samuel do we see David thrown in an actual pit. Though perhaps at some point he would have been and it wasn't narrated. This is likely just a figure of speech that his circumstances felt like a pit. It was like Joseph in Genesis 37 that was taken by his brothers so quickly and suddenly and cast into a cistern or a pit from which he could not deliver himself. David said, I've been in a pit of destruction and you, you drew me out. So where I'm at now in your faithfulness, O Lord, it is by your power and your promise-keeping faithfulness that I'm where I'm at. You've drawn me out of the pit of destruction. He calls this a miry bog. Uh, This pit or this miry bog, it's being pictured as something that's muddy, something that's mossy. I don't know if you have much encounters with miry bogs. I personally don't. I'm not in them or around them often. But when I think of something like a bog, I think of something swamp-like, something muddy, and it could be rather deep that you wouldn't want your feet to get caught up in. You certainly wouldn't want to try to drive through one. And this miry bog, it's like David is saying, my, the, the feet of my life and my circumstances were, were stuck in or, or pressed into and un, unable to be rested out of this circumstance. But you, God, you did what I couldn't do. You drew me out and you set my feet on a rock. 
making my steps secure. And then David, in verse 3, says, that remembrance of your deliverance resulted in praise. He put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise to our God. One of the reasons we know this is true in David's experience is because we have his psalms. Not to say we have every song he ever wrote, but what the Spirit has preserved for us in the biblical canon, we have psalms, which are songs that are new from David for the people of Israel to sing that David's new song would become ours. The David's song of deliverance would become ours. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise. And David knows something happens when you recount the delivering grace of God. When you say, here's where I was, here's what God has mightily done in me, he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. There's something powerfully compelling in listening to the testimony of someone who has gone through affliction and has recounted the faithfulness of God on their behalf. It helps others look to God, hope in God, and trust in God. In verse 3, David says, the ripple effect of this. That you have delivered me, and I will sing of your faithfulness. This will result, O God, in others seeing. Others revering you. Others trusting you. And blessed, in verse 4, would such a person be. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. David's testimony will be used as a means of grace to draw others into the blessing of what it is to know God. Blessed is such a man who makes the Lord his trust. You're making something your trust. It's unavoidable. You're looking to something for comfort and for stability. And I wonder if you think your feet are secure, but you're really in the miry bog of your sins and worldliness. David knows that what needs to happen is we turn to God who alone can deliver us. Blessed is such a person. Friend, if you trust in the Lord, if you look to Christ and hope in Christ, that's not a losing proposition. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You know, maybe, maybe someone would be tempted to not go the way of David, to not imitate his trust in the Lord. They would look at the wicked. They would look at what seems to be the worldly powerful and maybe the things that they've been able to acquire in their wickedness. And in their pride and in their self-exaltation. And someone might say, well, I want what they have. Or the things seem to be working out for them. They're they're not following the Lord. So I'm going to go their way. David says, blessed is the one who doesn't turn to the proud. Who doesn't look at the self-exalting and say, I want to imitate that. He says, blessed is the one who doesn't trust and turn to the proud. Or who go astray after a lie. Now, that could mean general deception, those who are in their wickedness, plotting and manipulating, conniving and deceiving. Going after a lie could be, it is in the Psalms and in the prophets this, it could be an example of of talking about idolatry. Idolatry is the lie or the falsehood. So going after what is false or going after a lie can mean not only engaging in, in wicked deeds of deception, It could have the idea of false worship at the core of it. They're not going after the living God. They're going after what is not living. They're not going after the true God. They're going after the lie. They're going after what is false. The wicked don't worship God. 
So their deeds of darkness are emanating out of and overflowing from a heart entrenched in spiritual darkness because they don't worship God. What we need in our comforts and in our afflictions are hearts that turn to God. And here's what I want you to realize. Others also see you in your affliction. David knows this. And David knows, as I fight for trust in God, as I seek to look in Him and look to Him and hope in Him, it will also help others to fear the Lord and hope in God and trust God. David knows that his testimony matters. And he says in verse 5, You've multiplied, O my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I'll proclaim and tell of them, yet they're more than can be told. David, he's saying, I think in a, in a way that only words could try to capture, Lord, you're so great, I lack the adequate words to measure it fully. Lord, your deeds are so many. Not just individually to me, but among all the earth. You've multiplied your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. There's nothing that can compare with that. There's no deliverer like God. No redeemer like God. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it, David would say. I love to proclaim and tell of your wondrous deeds. Yet, my words will always fall short. Now, that doesn't mean David doesn't proclaim. David does proclaim. He just knows God is always worthy of more worship than David is able to give. It's not as if David could in the end adequately through words and deeds describe all of God's worth perfectly. God delights in and is exalted in the praise of his people. But God is always better than our greatest praise. God is always worthier and more righteous than and glorious than our proclamation of his deeds. Yet, we shall proclaim them. We shall testify. And we will say he is even better and greater than we can describe. David says, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds. My mind thinks about John's gospel at the end when the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. And John tells us in John chapter 20 and in John chapter 21, he says, listen, I've given you an account of some miracles, but the signs and wonders that Jesus did were so many that there wouldn't be enough books for me to write them all in in the earth. It's John's way of saying Christ has multiplied his wondrous deeds among us, and yet they are more than can be told. So John is trying to exalt the Lord Jesus in his glory and in his greatness. And yet John says, here's an account. Here is teachings, miracles, the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. Here's the account. He's even better than you think. In verses 6 to 10, the shift from his celebration of deliverance is in verses 6 to 10, a shift to his response of submission and proclamation. What's his response to God? Well, it tells us in verse 3 that he put a new song in David's mouth. So David's going to praise the Lord. And what we see in verses 6 to 10 is that David's words of worship are connected to a life that desires to submit to God. This is key. Notice how those are connected. A life where someone is seeking to praise the Lord with their lips and testify of his greatness. But that is connected to a life submitting to God. In verses 6 to 10, this is David's response of submission and proclamation. 
In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Verses 6 to 8 here are David's way of saying, Lord, what is it that you are after? At the bottom of it all, when you, when you look through all the ceremonial and ritual regulations in the Old Testament law, David is saying, what are you after? Is it burnt offerings? Is it the sin offerings? Is it the lambs, the bulls, the oxen, the birds? Is it the offerings that you want? David is saying, that's not, that's not the source of your delight. You've given me an open ear. The requirement of burnt offering and sin offering here sounds like a, an extreme statement in verse 6. You've not required burnt offering and sin offering? What about all those laws? Doesn't David know the Torah? He does know the opening books. He knows that the requirement is a life looking to God with trust and obedience. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You know, we sing this. Because the scriptures in the Old and New Testaments teach us to trust the Lord, to submit to his word. And David says, it's not offerings you're after. You know what God wants from David? He wants David. You know what God wants from you? He wants you. He wants your life submitted to him to delight in his word and to follow in glad submission to the wisdom of God. Oh, what a blessed life that would be. Oh, what a life to flourish in the knowledge of God. No matter the affliction, to know the persevering grace of God in blessing that begins both now and that is life eternal. There's nothing that compares to this. It's not about the offerings. It's not about the sacrifices. In fact, David says in verse 6, you've given me an open ear. Now that idea of an ear matters because the Israelites hear the word of God that they might obey. That's the point of that claim. You have given me an open ear. David is receiving the word of God that he might obey the word of God. This is David's clever way of saying, you have not required the birds, the lambs, the oxen. You've called me to follow you. Even Jesus was asked, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what Jesus didn't answer with? A Levitical offering. What's the greatest commandment? Oh, you know, have you, have you read about the peace offering and the birds and the, the way the kidneys have to be separated and then the, what the priests do with the leftover dough of the grain offering? The, the greatest commandment's one of those. It's not the greatest commandment. Those are all shadows. Those are all pointers to something more. And that is the worshiper themselves. And Jesus says, loving God with all that you are. David said, I have an open ear. My ear is not closed to the word of God. It is open to the word of God because I want to live according to the words and wisdom he's revealed. David's resolve is seen in verses 7 and 8. Behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We don't have to just imply the notion of obedience from verse 6. It's made explicit in verses 7 and 8. When he says in the scroll of the book, verse 8 parallels that with the law within my heart. How does David know what God's will is? He reads the scriptures. And as the king of Israel, according to Deuteronomy 17, the king was to personally compose, or copy I should say, not compose from uh, origination, but to copy 
the Torah, the first five books of Moses, so that the law of God would be more internalized for Israel's king. The scroll of the book is the law in verse 8. It is written of me. David knows that he as a king has responsibilities and God has called his people to trust and to obey in the scroll of the book, in the law. So David says, you've given me an open ear and you know what's happened to your law? God in my head and it got in my heart. Look at verse 8. Your law is within my heart. How did the law get in David's heart? It went in his open ear. In other words, David is submitting to, with sensitivity toward, the word of God that David might be a man of God pursuing the heart of God. David says, I've come. In the scroll of the book it's written to me, and I delight to do your will. Your law is in my heart. Now the book of Hebrews picks this up in a major wonderful way. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10 that this is fulfilled far beyond the life of David. For David himself was still a sinner. The best thing about Psalm 40 is how the writer of Hebrews uses it for the Lord Jesus. There are seven weeks that remain to the end of the year. Seven weeks from today is New Year's Day. I don't know if you're keeping count. I try to remind us weekly just because I'm amazed at the passing of time. Uh, but uh, and seven weeks left in the remainder of the year. We've got holidays coming up and Advent and Christmas and wonderful times of remembrance and celebration mixed with the difficulties of living in a fallen world and the challenges of going through 2023 and any year prior. And not knowing the future, we're wanting to gather together and remember and call one another to remembrance for the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. That's one of the things we'll do tonight, actually. We'll be celebrating and giving public thanksgiving to God's faithfulness and His wonders. We will not be able to fully capture them, but we will do our, our best to proclaim His faithfulness. And David here is pointing forward to the Lord Jesus, whose perfect life would hear the word and know and live out the word upon his very heart. And listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. So Psalm 40 is about to be put on the lips of Jesus. He said, the writer tells us, when he came into the world, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. But I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it's written of me in the scroll of the book. It's not just the kingly responsibilities in the opening books of the Old Testament that David knew were written for his obedience and wisdom. The books of the law foreshadowed and prophesied a Messiah. Long after the days of David, the son of David would come to fulfill all that was written in the scroll of the book. And rather than saying, you've just given me an open ear, the son of God would say, you've given me a body. It's as if a part to whole argument is being represented. Because again, to hear with your ear is meant to have a whole life response to the word of God. All that you are, your whole life and body, to hear the word is to live with bodily dedication and devotion to the Lord. So Hebrews 10 says, upon the lips of Jesus, let's hear this psalm. In sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but you've given a body, a body you've prepared for me. This is the incarnation. How will the Son of God, 
live with obedience to the Word of God, and without sin, then on the cross bear our sins? The answer is through the incarnation of the eternal Son. He will take to himself a human nature. And the writer of Hebrews knows that Psalm chapter 10 echoes long after David's life to where it finds its greatest significance in the life of Jesus. In verse 9 of our passage this morning, David says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. He's not trying to keep his thanksgiving to God private. Well, you know, I'm really thankful to God and, you know, I, I, I celebrate his wonders. I just do so secretly. David says, I have not kept quiet about it. I have told the glad news of deliverance. That word glad news can be translated gospel. I have been, told, I have been telling the good news. I've been proclaiming gospel of your deliverance, O Lord. My lips have not been restrained. If David had restrained his lips, it would mean he's not telling these things. So this is a negative way of saying, he says, I've not restrained my lips. To say positively, I've opened my mouth. You gave me an open ear. Your word has gotten into my heart. And now I'm testifying from my mouth of what's in my heart of your faithfulness and wondrous deeds. I've not hidden your deliverance in verse 10. I've not hidden it within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness, of your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. You know, David's the king over Israel. What he says would have great weight with others. It would matter. He's viewed as a leader. He's viewed as their king over the whole land. And that means David's example and David's words would have a ripple effect. What if the king of Israel had stood up and he was defying the Lord? And he was publicly repudiating the words of Moses. Oh, the disastrous and poisonous effect that would be in the land. Oh, but how great it would be and the implications for those listening publicly to hear David's testimony of his faithfulness, the God's, God's faithfulness to him. He says, I've not concealed it from the great congregation. We gather together and I proclaim it. I want to make an application here just thinking about the Lord's Day. Why does it matter that we gather together as the people of God on the Lord's Day? It is so that we can speak of and not conceal, but rather sing and proclaim His faithfulness. One of the responsibilities and privileges we have is that when we gather together as the people of God, we do so so that our devotion to Christ is not kept secret or private, but to come together and proclaim the faithfulness of the Lord. That's what this psalm was. This psalm is a song, and it's written to the choir master, which means David's psalm had public appreciation and participation. The people of God would gather in the great congregation, and David says, I've not restrained the praise due your name, O Lord. I've not concealed your faithfulness. So we're eager to do this. As people seeking to follow Christ and believe the gospel, we want to proclaim the the good news. News that's even better than David being delivered from some pit or cistern of affliction. We're proclaiming that the Lord Jesus has delivered us from our sins. We're saying that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended in power and glory. And he has the name that is above every name. We gather to proclaim good news. So verses 6 to 10 is David's submission and remembrance of God's faithfulness. Submission to God's lordship. Verses 11 to 17 
catches us up to speed in David's present. The present when David was writing this psalm. While he has remembered God's faithfulness, while he knows what it is to wait upon the Lord, while he has testified of God's faithfulness, something has arisen now in verses 11 to 17. Here are his petitions for judgment and deliverance. David's petitions for judgment and deliverance. Beginning in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Oh, do you feel the desperation there in verses 11 and 12? That's one of the most potent aspects of the book of Psalms. The emotionality of the language. He does not hold back. He says in verse 12, I am surrounded by and overwhelmed by evil outwardly and inwardly. In verse 11, this is David's confidence in the fact that he has not restrained his own praise or celebration of God's goodness. Here's what David knows. God, you won't restrain mercy from me. We're both not restraining. I'm not restraining my praise. I am eager to glorify you. And Lord, I know that your posture toward your people is you lean in. You incline your ear. So you will not restrain your mercy. I can count on it. Day by day, moment by moment, we are sustained by the ever-present mercy of God. David knows God's not going to pull it back. He knows the, the mercy without restraint pours upon the people of God. David knows this in such a way that he can say at the end of verse 11, How am I preserved? How am I sustained? Is David sustained because David is so strong? I don't think that's the impression you would get from his psalms. We've looked now at 40 of them. I don't think the 40 psalms here are celebrating David's strength. I don't think that's the impression. I think instead, David is calling out to God because he is weak. Because he is weary, because he is overwhelmed, and what he knows will get him through all of this is the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. So he knows he can count on that. He knows that no matter what else comes against me, what is for him is greater than anything that's against him. The steadfast love and faithfulness are for David. They will ever preserve me. David needs this confidence because in verse 12, the evils are many. He says they are beyond number. Now, if if I were to ask you um, which particular things in this life seem to be afflicting you and causing trial and hardship, you would probably be able to say this or this or this or this. I'm not sure that we should see this as anything other than hyperbole. David has a specific amount of afflictions, but he's speaking with poetic license here saying, I can't even count them. They are beyond number. Don't even ask me to list them. David says, I wouldn't be able to stop. You can't count them. And my iniquities, my sins. You see, what the difficulties of life is not only, not only are we dealing with hardships outside of us. We're dealing with our own sin along the way. And our own sin does not make everything better. So here we are already facing the challenges of a Genesis 3 world. And David says, my iniquities have overtaken me. Imagine David describing himself, if you will, in a miry bog once more. Even if politically and socially not everything is in disarray, spiritually it's like his feet are caught up in the mud and the muck of the mire. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. 
Oh, hardships can be that way. Hardships can be the way. I don't think David's talking about physical blindness. I don't think he's saying my suffering has actually caused me to not see. I think David is saying, I feel directionless. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do next. I can't see what the next step should be. I think David is talking about the overwhelming experience of hardship numbing him in such a way where he, he's lacked all sense of his bearings. He's like, I feel so unstable. It's like my bearings are all off. I, I can't even see what to do or where to go. All I can do sometimes, Lord, is just call out to you. Just to look to you. Because otherwise, I can't see. I'm overwhelmed. I'm encompassed by evils without number. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. I mean, verses 11 and 12 is David's resolve connected to a very dire set of conditions. We feel for David. We say, how awful this must be. So how good of news it is that God is so faithful. He says in verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. And O Lord, make haste to help me. He, this is his way of saying in verse 13, Lord, I pray and not only delight you to deliver me, I pray that your delight to deliver me is sooner rather than later. Like, I, Lord, now would be good. Now would be really good, Lord. Come soon. Make haste to help me. Be pleased to deliver me. David knows where his great deliverance shall come from. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, you know that's not from Psalm 40. It's a different psalm. But nevertheless, it's the psalmist's way of directing our hearts over and over again to the great delivering power of God. And he says in verse 14, here's what I need you to do to the wicked. In verse 13, it's what I need for me. I need you to deliver me. But Lord, evils have encompassed me without number. I need you to prevail over them. I need their designs against me to collapse. So he says in verse 14, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. David is in a situation where people are literally trying to kill him. Whatever suffering he's dealing with, in addition to that, whatever iniquities and sins have overwhelmed him, in addition to that, there is the reality that as the king, he is under physical threat for his very life. There are people who want David dead. And he says, Lord, I want them to be disappointed. <laughs> I want them to have their plans completely fall apart. I need them, rather than trying to position themselves for honor and social power over me, I need you to bring them to shame. It's the opposite of their plan succeeding. David is praying that those who are trying to snatch his life would not succeed. Look at the end of verse 14. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. You know, the, the delight and pleasing language in verses 13 and 14 is interesting. They delight to hurt David. David needs God to delight to save him. They would be pleased for David's undoing. He needs God to be pleased to deliver him. He needs God's delight to save to be greater than their delight to condemn. Let those be turned back. Whatever route they were taking toward David, making a beeline for his destruction, they need an immediate about face. They need to go back. 
brought to dishonor. They need, in verse 15, he says, I need you to make them appalled because of their shame. Because right now they say to me, aha, it's like they've got him. It's like they've cornered him. David, there's no escape for you. There's no God for you. There's no deliverance for you. Look at what's surrounding you. You're finished. And David says, I need their smirks and their glee to be brought to an appalled countenance, a disappointed outlook. I need all of their plans to collapse and them to take off running before you. In verse 16, may all, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. This is an effect of David's testimony. David wants to rejoice in God. He wants to delight in God's deliverance. And he wants you to do it as well. But if we are rebelling against the Lord and we are not delighting with an open ear to His Word and we're not seeking to seal within our hearts what is wise and good and pleasing according to the words of God, then we are trusting in something other than God. And down that path is not deliverance. Down that path is judgment. Down that path is condemnation. So when David says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you and those who love your salvation. Friends, those who love the salvation of the Lord are those for whom God is their refuge. There is no refuge from God outside of God. There is only looking to God with trust and faith. Loving His salvation. Celebrating with with joy and exultation. Great is the Lord. They don't want to turn from God. The people of God want to praise Him. They want to follow Him. They want to hear with an open ear His Word. They want to say, Behold, Lord, I've come to do Your will. I want to submit to You as I follow in union with the Lord Jesus. May those who seek You rejoice and be glad in You. God is calling us to everlasting joy in Him. Rejoicing and be glad In Him. Not in the things of this world that that glitter and that tempt and that allure, but shall fade like the dew upon morning grass. The unfailing, unwavering, totally faithful and all-surpassingly great God whose salvation we experience and love because you see, you celebrate what you love. You will. So this means if we love what God has done, We will say so. David's circumstances are described at the very end of the psalm in verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help, he says to the Lord. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. The first line of verse 17 is a surprising line if we overread it because we think, how is he poor? He's the king of Israel. I don't think this is about his current financial numbers on a spreadsheet. When David is saying, I'm poor and needy, I think he's talking about the helplessness that he feels, like those poor in the ancient Near East would feel. I think it's a depiction of David's circumstances where he says, I'm helpless, so you are my help. That's verse 17 at the second line. I'm helpless, you are my help. I am in need, you are the deliverer. Why why can David be confident of this? In verse 17, here's what he knows about God. The Lord 
takes thought for me. That means God's mindfulness toward us does not change. That means his attentiveness and his intricate, careful, moment by moment, compassion and grace toward us never ceases. Not for one nanosecond will it ever cease. So David says, I'm helpless and I know who my help is. You are my help. You are my deliverer. And Lord, now would be good. Now do not delay, O God. Come, O Lord, with your saving hand that I might celebrate you and that in being delivered, others will come to trust and fear the Lord. The Lord Jesus is right. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. David here is poor in spirit. David is needy before his all-sufficient God. And he knows that in light of who he himself is as a sinner, surrounded by evil and overwhelmed by his iniquity, he has a deliverer whom he can trust and whose faithfulness will ever preserve him. Let's pray.